Hey everyone, it's Paul here. You know, when I started the Problem of Evil series over a year ago, actually it was October of 2019, it was in part because questions from listeners about the Problem of Evil were easily among the most asked questions I'd get in my inbox. But it was also because I had just sat through the funeral of a young child, and that experience reopened me to some old questions in my mind, questions that I I thought I had settled, but come to find out, weren't that settled. Feeling like it would be an immense act of hubris to try and give an answer to listeners' questions about the problem of evil when far greater minds than mine had long wrestled with its challenges and disagreed in their responses. And, you know, feeling like I, I needed to systematically revisit the theodicies of the past in order to reshape my own, I set out on this endeavor to cover over 2,000 years of theological and philosophical history in the Christian tradition to see if there could be some satisfactory response to the problem of evil, uh, something that might emerge as I combed through the works of those great minds of the past. Now, I've honestly tried to be an objective tour guide over each of the previous 16 installments of this series. In many ways, I have been just as unsettled in my own answers to these questions as many as you have. And it was, it was important for me to be in that state of mind so I could be open to whatever wisdom a John Calvin or an Origen may afford, even if I once held prior disagreements to both of their positions. Even as I present my conclusions in today's episode, and which will not probably just be in today's episode, where this is this conclusion's probably in and of itself going to be a multi-part deal here. I'm doing this still with the cement wet. It's I, I'm still moldable, and I I want to make sure that I'm clear on this. Uh, this is where I land today. I I I'm open to being wrong. I'm open to having one of you reach out to me and to try to change my mind. And, and I'm open to changing my mind in the future. But you know what? I have to act in the world a particular way. I, I have to pray a particular way. I, I have to interpret acts of evil and suffering in a particular way, just like all of you, so we can have the cement still wet, still be open to the possibility that we could find some different way of seeing things and yet still have to come to a particular conclusion right now, a conclusion that will allow us to act, pray, interpret the acts of evil and suffering in a particular way right now in front of us. So this conclusion is my best response to the problem of evil. The ways uh, I could go about laying out this concluding theodicy are numerous, but for the sake of consistency, I'm going to start with the biblical literature, and then we'll start working through some of the ideas from the past that I have synthesized into my own present theodicy. And then I'll, of course, lay out some points of disagreement with those brilliant voices, both past and present. And even in those disagreements, I hope you guys would hear after going through this entire series that I um, am not trying to call anybody a heretic. <laughs> I don't want to have any witch hunts here. I, I simply am going to respectfully, as I can, express disagreement 
with those points in which I find disagreement. So we'll begin today with the biblical literature and some of those challenges we talked about right away. The challenges that emerge as we feel like we maybe see different pictures in the Old and New Testament of who's culpable or responsible for acts of egregious suffering or evil. Thanks for listening to Deep Talks, Exploring Theology and Meaning Making, a podcast dedicated to exploring the intersection of theology with all of our efforts to find and make meaning in the world. And in a time where outrage seems to drive the social media algorithms, we're trying to foster nuanced, non-combative dialogue about theology and philosophy, the intersection of theology and science, the arts and culture. If you haven't listened to this podcast before, I really think the best thing to do before you jump into these conclusion episodes is to actually work your way through every single part of this series. It's a commitment of time, mental and spiritual focus, but I think it's worth it. For questions like this, I think it deserves this kind of attention. Today's episode is made possible ad-free by the generous supporters of this podcast on Patreon. Make sure you stay tuned at the end of this episode to figure out how you can get involved and connect with others in the Deep Talks Patreon community. Why begin with the biblical literature if we're going to try to sort through the problem of evil? Well, I think it's important to start here in any Christian theodicy because as a follower of Jesus, I place a premium on the scriptures that Jesus himself held to be as authoritative and as well as the New Testament canon that bears witness to the revelation of God and Jesus Christ. So my goal then for interacting with those voices beyond the canon of scripture, those voices in church history that we've spent so much time engaging with, is to see how their perspectives might shed light on what has been revealed in the biblical witness. Because It's in the biblical witness where we get closest to the historical witness and revelation of Jesus, the Messiah. Obviously, as we do this, there are underlying philosophical and theological commitments we've got to confess to. For example, I mean, I presuppose, and I'm pretty sure you do too, at least a degree of a fundamentally good and intelligible reality. It's at least good enough and intelligible enough that uh, we act in a way in which when we even set out to understand the scriptures, to understand God's self-disclosure in the language of the scriptures, that we actually believe we can do that. If that isn't the case, if If creation at some level isn't fundamentally good, if it's not intelligible, then I have no foundation for trusting that the words on the page should even make sense. If it's not reasonable, if the universe is chaotic, random, uh, you know, if, if God is malevolent even, we have no basis for even trusting even the slightest degree of rationality even the slightest degree of rationality that it takes to make sense of the words on a page or the words that you're hearing in your headphones or on your speakers right now as you're listening to this. In consulting the biblical literature, I am also affirming that God wants to be known. 
And I already believe in a God who acts imminently within his contingent creation to reveal things about himself and the world. So those are obviously some of the underlying philosophical, theological presuppositions I carry in. I think we all do whenever we affirm something like, well, let's start with the biblical literature. As Kevin Van Hooser says, there's, there's always, there are first questions that we have to answer before we even move into the position of affirming the centrality of the biblical witness. So before anybody goes, hey, dude, you know, when you say you're starting with the Bible, we know that it's not just the Bible. I'm affirming that. I get that. But I'm also affirming, even with those presuppositions, that the canon of Scripture is the place where followers of Jesus begin. At the very beginning of this series, I highlighted some of the difficulties of discerning a unified biblical theodicy in the canon of Scripture. If we were to read the Bible cover to cover, we would find that, well, what we should expect to find if God's revelation to humanity always happens in cultured communication, and in particular cultural context. If that's the case, and it certainly is, then what we're going to find are diverse expressions of what causality may be for various instances of evil and suffering in the various books of the Bible. It's not that the biblical authors from Genesis to Revelation, that they all lived in the same context, that they all lived in the same time period, that they all lived with the same, if we would to use this word, scientific worldview, the same philosophical worldview. No, there's diversity. And so we should expect a degree of diversity of expression in many things beyond just, you know, looking for specific instances of causality for evil and suffering. Uh, we should look for diversity in the scriptures. That doesn't mean that the scriptures are not inspired because we may see diversity of expression. That diversity brings harmony, uh, an important concept we will um, refer again to at the very end of these conclusion episodes. In the Old Testament, there are no explicit mentions of demons that harm humans in any physical, moral way. Have you ever noticed that? You know, you go through the book of Exodus, for example, and the children of Israel are wandering in the wilderness, and there's some pretty horrible things that happen to them while they're in the wilderness some temptations, right? They, they grumble, they complain. Not a single mention of demonic influence in any of that. Jump into the New Testament, which is obviously written much later and after many generations of cultural change, and you find 568 references to demons or Satan as spiritual entities who torment humanity with physical or psychological suffering. That's a big change. We can acknowledge that. We can be honest about that. It's a significant difference. Some of you say, well, I know Satan's mentioned a few times in the Old Testament. We might have to go back to the very beginning of the series to understand why um, good reading of Scripture, I think, will lead to us seeing something like Satan in the book of Job or named Satan in the book of Job as a different character, in fact, just a challenging uh, angel in the divine court of God in the Old Testament, and a Satan that is very 
different than the Satan that we see in the New Testament. So you have to refer back to that episode because I won't be able to flesh that all out here, but I just want to acknowledge there's a big difference, right? It's obvious. So what do we do with that? You know, we, we can see when we go through the Old Testament that God regularly accepts culpability for evil and suffering in ways that would be oftentimes attributed to Satan in the New Testament. That's tough. Like, consider the final plague in Egypt. That's recorded in Exodus 11 and 12. You know, if, like me, you grew up watching Charlton Heston's The Ten Commandments. <laughs> You might remember that final plague as the angel of death who killed the firstborn. But, you know, look back at Exodus 11 and 12. The Bible makes no specific mention of an angel of death and instead claims that Yahweh, the Lord, did it directly. At other points in the Old Testament, there are angelic and human agents that cause great suffering as apparent agents of God's will. We talked about instances like the angel of death in 2 Kings 19.35, who killed 185,000 men in Sennacherib's army, or how the prophet Jeremiah says that Nebuchadnezzar is acting as, quote, God's servant when his violent armies descend upon the Israelites in Jeremiah 27.6. You know, I've shared with you guys before, I, I grew up in a charismatic, very charismatic tradition, uh, to be specific, you know, the, the, the church experience of my childhood was uh, a word of faith, prosperity gospel, um, church context. And so we, we would say all the time, you know, in church, it was like, you know, we weren't liturgical with, you know, sorts of responsive prayers. But one thing that was, well, I, everybody has a liturgy. We've talked about this before. But one of the things that we were particularly liturgical about is if someone from the platform on the stage would say, God is good, everybody in the congregation, no matter what, if it was in the middle of a sermon, would respond back all the time. And uh, so we didn't like, really, really like to look at these instances that I just brought up, like the instance, the angel of death in Second Kings or Nebuchadnezzar being called God's servant. Those were texts that were challenging for us and we tried to stay away from. You can kind of see as if someone were to try to build a theodicy from scripture, how they might land, say, where Luther and Calvin did and make a hermeneutic decision to see those kinds of texts in the Old Testament as primary and thereby seeing God, not just as the primary cause of everything, including evil and suffering, but also the secondary cause of all things, even as his sovereign will finds expression through a human or angelic mediating agent. But as we talked about with the Marcionite heresy in the second century, we can certainly see how someone with a different hermeneutic lens who looks at the ministry of Jesus in the Gospels and, and finds like he only heals the sick, only casts out demons, might even go as far as to conclude that this wrathful God of the Old Testament wasn't actually the true God at all. You can see how, how Marcion and, and the Marcionite heresy got to that point. I'm not saying it's correct. I'm, it's actually far from the correct reading of Scripture in my humble opinion, not just my own humble opinion, but the opinion of the, the early church fathers. I, but even in acknowledging that, 
you sh I think you can also acknowledge, yeah, I can kind of see that. This is tricky. These are not the only possible hermeneutic lenses. I, we don't have to land with Luther and Calvin, though if you do, I respect that. We don't have to land with Marcion in his heresies, thankfully. I believe that there's actually a better explanation that, that can come about when we have a more robust cultural theology, one that takes seriously the implicit doctrine of progressive revelation in the Christian scriptures. Could God have revealed to, say, the prophet Isaiah, living in the 8th century BC, that one day humans would travel on rocket ships to the moon? Is it possible? Uh, maybe. But I think it's more improbable. In fact, I'd say it's doubtful that this kind of revelation could have happened between God and Isaiah because it would have made absolutely zero sense to someone living 2,700 years ago in the ancient Near East. No, God's revelation to the original biblical authors and audiences always works within their cultural framework. He uses their language, their symbol, their science, and oftentimes their philosophical worldview to disclose revelation that has existential application within their imminent context, but also has a transcendent calling that moves them gradually beyond their cultural limitations. This is why I believe that our earliest biblical books have God accepting more culpability for instances of immense suffering, with no competing spiritual forces like demons or Satan mentioned. In a polytheistic culture, in the world that Israel inhabited, they needed to learn the revelation of monotheism, a, a task that required the temporary elimination of any possible hint of competition or rivalry to Yahweh's will being accomplished in the world. As Israel slowly began to see this truth, God slowly disclosed an increasing awareness of the existence of other spiritual principalities and powers. Spiritual entities who, I want to make clear, they didn't exist of their own will or accord. So this, these are not competing gods like what we see in so many other ancient Near Eastern religious mythologies, but these spiritual entities were contingently existing because of God's intentional will, just like the rest of creation. Historically, we see a quantum leap in this facet of God's revelation take place during the second temple period as we approach the birth of Christ. And I think this points to another insight into God's intentions with his progressive revelation. Not only did God refrain from disclosing malevolent spiritual entities called the demonic because of the need to pull Israel out of polytheism, but I also think that God delayed the disclosure of these entities because until Christ, humanity was virtually powerless to do anything about the demonic. It would have only freaked them out. <laughs> I mean, to, to see behind the curtain when you can't do anything about it, well, what good does that do you? So as a follower of Jesus, I, I have to take seriously when 
I consider what might be the best possible explanations for evil and suffering, I have to consider that the Jesus of the Gospels, the only Jesus we have access to, claimed there was an evil ruler of this world. While that picture of malevolent spiritual forces and Satan was not accessible to the original audience reading, say, the book of Job, where there was a challenger angel in God's divine court of angelic hosts, that revelation is accessible to us today. Now, simultaneously, I do not think that gives us the license to safely go back into the earlier revelations, let's say in the, in the Old Testament specifically, and then force a new interpretation on them. Can I go back and make the book of Exodus, which has no mention of Satan, be filled now with the activity of Satan in any instance of suffering that appears to me to be instances of suffering that are frequently attributed to Satan in the New Testament? No, I don't think I can do that. Now, do the New Testament authors do things like that when, where they maybe retroactively change the original meaning of text within the Old Testament scriptures? Yes, they do. But neither you nor I should claim that level of authority. It's best that we wrestle with the biblical revelation that we have and not try to edit it. Where we feel the struggle and tension we should just accept our calling as the people grafted into that kingdom of priests called Israel, a name that means one who struggles with God. So we allow each book to speak on their own terms, and then we patiently work to step into their world. This is the work we have to do with the scriptures. As we do this, I believe that we will find harmony in the revelations of the biblical scriptures, but we should not confuse harmony with a single univocal melody. Clearly, in the song of scripture, the book of Job may be the most direct theodicy book in all the Bible, and it's important that we bring its revelation to bear when trying to form a biblical theodicy. So let's turn our attention now to Job. Uh, we've gone through that book extensively in the very first episode, but there are some things I want to bring out of the book of Job, and if you want to do more reading on this, I really recommend the work of Tremper Longman III and John Walton as a couple trustworthy scholars who've got um, great insights into the book of Job, and I, I cite them throughout our early episode, that first episode in this series on Job. As the book of Job is one of our most important theodicy books in the scriptures, let's grab some of the important revelations that emerge from this book that we have to account for as we shape our own theodicies. There are three key truths I want to bring out from the book of Job that I think set some limits, some benchmarks for our own theodicy. First, Mesopotamian religions held that chaos, suffering, and evil were woven into the very fabric of the cosmos, and even the gods were subject to them. Evil existed outside the jurisdiction of the gods. Job shows us that this isn't the case, though, for the one true God of Israel. There are no forces beyond the jurisdiction of God. Chaos is not ontologically prior to God. 
evil is not ontologically prior to God. There is nothing ontologically prior or superior to God. So that's the first one. The second key revelation, the revelatory truth from the book of Job that I think is central for us to properly shape our own theodicy is this. While the retribution principle or something akin to what we could call karma is often generally true in the universe, it is not a universal law that is always at work in every situation. Something can be generally true, but not universally true in all situations. And the retribution principle, or what we might call karma, is one of those things. In general, you reap what you sow. Is that always the case? No, it's not. And thirdly, this one's really, really important. It's closely tied to that second revelation. People do not always reap what they sow. People do not always get what they deserve. While it may be typically true that God structured reality with discernible causal patterns for what sorts of actions produce pleasure and what sorts of actions might produce pain or suffering, it is not universally true that a clearly discernible causal connection can be made between an action and a reaction. In more recent scientific history, we've actually learned this to be true at the the quantum level with the discovery of quantum mechanics, quantum physics. There's so much more to the world than the Newtonian view of mechanical cause and effect. The quantum world is far more unpredictable. It's much more difficult to see a causal connection between an action and a reaction. There's so much more to the world than that Newtonian view of mechanical cause and effect. And we see this, in a sense, in God's response to Job at the end of the book. Now, Job didn't know about quantum theory. (laughs) You know, that would be like, again, God telling Isaiah or some prophet about, you know, a rocket ship going to the moon. It wouldn't have made sense. But it's kind of what God is revealing to Job. Job, hey, buddy. You're not going to be able to figure out all the causal connections in the universe. It's just wait until you humans learn about quantum theory. Oh, that's going to blow your mind. You know, that, that's, I'm paraphrasing, you know, pretty generously here, but that's essentially what God tells Job. The end, you're not going to be able to figure out all the, all the causal connections. It's, it's, it's too much for you. All right. Understanding that karma doesn't run the universe is essential to building a biblically informed theodicy. God has seemingly structured reality in such a way where people often don't get what they deserve. And I think that question, that feeling is so deeply wound up in all really our our deepest questions about evil and suffering, when we see someone who of no, we, we can't figure out what caused some horrific suffering to enter into their life. Why did they experience so much evil? Why did they have to go through this? The thing that we're really grappling with is, well, why isn't this person getting what I think they deserve? 
And it seems like through the biblical revelation and through our own experiences, we can see that people often times don't get what they deserve. I believe that we can see in the biblical narrative that God chose intentionally to create a reality where there is a degree of will or potentiality that we're free to wield for creative or destructive purposes. Why God would have had this kind of world versus another world that might be devoid of such freedom of will, you know, maybe we'll address a little bit later. But I believe that it's in God's intentional designing of this kind of reality. He's done this intentionally. In structuring this kind of reality, he has provided a structure where mercy, grace, and forgiveness are possible. But in order for there to not be some sort of rigid karmic structure that would eliminate the possibility of grace and forgiveness, to to be a reality where people only get what they deserve, God also needed to allow for the possibility that good people would not always get what they deserve either. Or if I could put it another way, the possibility of mercy for one may require the possibility of the unjust suffering of another. We don't really want a world where people get what they deserve, do we? If our answer is no, then I think we may have to accept that unjust suffering for some may just be a side effect of grace in the here and now. But we can take heart even in that. We can take heart that even those instances of unjust suffering will not continue on forever without a final setting right of all things. When I was 19 years old, and this was actually very early on in my, into my first foray of vocational ministry, I was doing a, a pastoral internship. Within just several months on the job, my former youth pastor died in his early 50s of cancer. He was a great man who was faithful to his wife, raised two wonderful daughters. He volunteered as our youth pastor, and for his full-time job, he worked with special needs children. As far as I know, he never drank or smoked. He got up early every morning to go exercise before spending the rest of his day serving either special needs children or mentoring teenagers. I'd say he followed the wisdom of the book of Proverbs pretty well. Getting an an incurable cancer and dying was not getting what he deserved. And I know some of you hearing that might, you know, who might hold to some sort of like hyper total depravity reading of scripture may think, well, we're all sinners deserving of death. To which I would just kindly refer to you, refer you to the responses of Job's friends who sound awfully similar to you if that's what's going through your mind, and then to invite you to maybe see God's responses to Job's friends. Sitting beside him in hospice with the shell of him that remained unable to recognize me, I I wondered how such a fate could befall this righteous man instead of some violent cartel leader or child brothel owner But what if in some sense he was participating in the unjust sufferings of Christ? 
what if a world of grace and forgiveness, a world where bad people don't always get what they deserve, can't exist if all of the righteous get what they deserve? Maybe sometimes that cup of unjust suffering just cannot pass from the righteous. The linchpin of our faith rests on the fact that the cup of unjust suffering did not pass the only perfect righteous one, Jesus the Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The cross unequivocally demonstrates that karma does not run the world. As the righteous Son of God suffers upon the cross, he prays for the forgiveness of the very ones who are murdering him. This isn't to say that all kinds of suffering are participating in Christ's sufferings. In 1 Peter 4, the author writes, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. There are certainly instances of suffering that we inflict on ourselves as the result of our own foolishness. But again, we see in places like the book of Job, Ecclesiastes, and ultimately on the cross of Christ, we see that not all suffering is the result of our sin or lack of wisdom. At this point, I think it's appropriate to ask, if you haven't already, what is suffering? And we want to ask that in order to define our terms and differentiate between potentially conflicting conceptions of suffering and their associations with the concept of evil. We most often associate suffering with experiences of physical or psychological pain. But whether we name an experience of displeasure or pain as an evil-induced experience of suffering or not is largely an act of perspectival interpretation. So in this way, I agree with Karl Barth. I agree that there is a shadow side of creation, if you will, where we experience the forces of entropy and decay, the, the breaking down of our bodies as we age, and, and even physical death as an experience of pain or discomfort that may in fact just be part of the good ordering of creation. It was my wife's birthday recently, so I took her out to this really nice restaurant. It's a beautiful night together. We just, we felt the goodness of God all around us. And yet, in the middle of eating my steak, I had an epiphany about all the pain and possible suffering that happened in the process that made for such a beautiful evening for my wife and I. I know I'm great dinner company, aren't I? <laughs> I brought, even brought it up to my wife at, at the time, which she, she always loves. <laughs> you know, I, I started looking around and thinking, well, the animals that died to become the food we were consuming, did they suffer? The hard work in the soil that someone gave to plant and grow the vines that produced the glass of wine we enjoyed. I thought about the the aching feet of our waiter who was serving us, the cook in the kitchen who may have dreamed of doing something different with her life, staving off some existential disappointment while she adjusts her mask that she has to wear because of the COVID pandemic. 
The truck driver who delivered the food and the ingredients to the kitchen whose back is aching from driving a semi-truck eight hours a day. All of it a sacrifice. On and on, I could go connecting all the dots to the human and non-human life that experienced perhaps some sort of discomfort, pain, decay, or destruction to make my beautiful, good moment with my wife on her birthday possible. If I wanted to keep going, I could even think about the asteroid that collided with the Earth and eventually killed off the dinosaurs some 65 million years ago, making way for mammals like us to even occupy a space on this planet. Is all of this evil because there was pain and suffering involved? The prevailing scientific theory for how our universe came to be some 14 billion years ago says that All of the matter and energy that exists in our universe was at the very beginning a single point. It was, in some sense, in that single point, the most ordered the universe could be with the lowest amount of possible entropy. When the Big Bang happened, all of that matter and energy moved from its initially ordered state to an ever-increasing expansion of entropy— As much as I enjoy many of the features of Greg Boyd's Warfare Worldview, when we talked back in episode 84 along with Thomas J. Ord about Bart's shadow side idea and entropy, Greg said that it is, quote, harder for us to imagine how creation could have been otherwise, but I have reasons to think it could have been otherwise than it is, end quote. This kind of theodicy assumes a degree of power to Satan and the demonic that so powerfully rivals the will of God from the very first moment of creation, the very first moment of the creation of our universe is there Satan and demonic evil forces shaping it to be that when I hear this and the more I think about it, the more I am concerned that it might too closely resemble something akin to those other ancient Near Eastern notions of a primordial chaos that even the gods have to answer to. This level of ontological rivalry calls into question any state of original goodness in God's creation, which to me is essential to the biblical narrative and to making sense of any of life at all. It borders to me on the ontological dualism of the Gnostics. I'm not saying Greg Boyd is a Gnostic. (laughs) I'm saying elements of that warfare worldview. It, it, It gets close to it the more that I think about it. It gets close to it by assigning such a significant role in Satan's tampering with creation that the material world may as well have been the product of a defective demiurge. If even it's possible that the, the, the initial moment of creation was already defective in some sense, that even the force of entropy and decay that we see, the breaking down, the, 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 the fact that we, are, we exist as the, the product of exploding stars and stardust, that this all was not part of God's good design, but may have been defected from the get-go, ah, that, that produces too many questions for me. Though I was once a card-carrying open theist and a full proponent of the warfare view, I can't fully espouse it 
on all its points anymore. Now, as I mentioned before, we have to take serious Jesus's own words, calling Satan the prince or the ruler of this world, but we also need to understand how John's gospel has varying meanings for the term world or cosmos in Greek. So there's certainly this sense in which cosmos means the entire world, creation, or all of humanity, as in the case of John 3.16, but there's also the sense in which cosmos means the corrupt systems, or to use a term that I cover in standalone episode number 77, the sinful hyper-objects of the fallen age. I can't unpack all of the exegetical reasons now, but I'm of the opinion that when Jesus calls Satan in, in John's gospel uh, the ruler of this world, it is the latter meaning of cosmos and not the former that's intended. I'd even contend that Jesus affirms some sort of link between at least some kinds of natural decay and the cross when he says in John 12, quote, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds, end quote. When we actually take a moment to disengage from our screens and virtual worlds or just to get outside of the limits of our concrete city jungles and spend time on a farm or in a garden, we're quickly reminded of the necessary cycles of death and renewal and creation. This is literally happening every moment all around us. It's not just the grain of wheat. Plants consume the sun's heat. Herbivores consume the plants. Carnivores concern, consume the herbivores. Detrivores and decomposers consume the dead remains of it all. Those decomposers then, they put their nutrients into the soil to feed other plants. This is not evil, but goodness in action. While Bart's shadow side concept may correctly affirm that not all decay, pain, or suffering is evil or part of the fall, I actually don't believe it goes as far as it should in accurately naming what I see as a rightly ordered suffering consistent with the reoccurring patterns found in the biblical revelation and in general revelation. So what I'm suggesting is much closer to what theologian Sarah Coakley and Christian philosopher Nancy Murphy over at Fuller have argued for in the past. There is a cruciform center to the patterns of death and renewal that we see in the natural world. There's altruistic behavior throughout the natural world that, that Coakley argues is as vitally important to a population's survival as the instincts of self-preservation. That grain of wheat falling is not evil. The birthday dinner I had with my wife was not evil. I know some vegans might say because I had a steak, it was evil, but that's another debate for another time. Not all experiences of suffering are evil. At our most basic biological level, an experience of pain is just something our body and brain interpret as a potential threat to our survival. Whether the signal of that threat in any specific instance is an actual threat to our existence often has as much to do with our interpretive framework and perspective as it does any conceivable objective evaluation of real danger to our existence. When I really push myself when I'm exercising, and 
and my my body it it gives me these signals that say hey buddy if you don't stop this right now something terrible is going to happen you know what any of you that are mature athletes that exercise on a regular occasion or you've played sports at a high level you know how to sift through the difference between pushing through the pain of exhaustion or that lactic acid buildup in your muscles and injury. You know the difference between those kinds of pain. While those who are inexperienced with exercise or those who are not driven by a disciplined goal regularly interpret those initial instances of discomfort as detrimental suffering that threatens their good. This is where provocation from the Greek Stoic philosophers might be worth considering. Does our instinctive reaction to an event we experience reflect the actual meaning of the event? That's a good question. All right. It's a good question the Stoics provoked people to think about. Does the, the, does the event inherently have the meaning that we initially interpret it to have. So, for example, when we play peekaboo with a baby, that baby's instinctive reaction to the event of us hiding our face is to interpret it in their limited cognitive abilities as an instance of us actually disappearing. Is that the true meaning of what's going on in that event? I mean, perhaps to the baby, but we, in our superior abilities of rationality and wisdom, we know that we're not actually disappearing. Are the entropic forces that set our solar system into place evil? Is the, the grain of wheat falling to the earth evil? Is the lactic acid buildup in my muscles as I try to power through one more push-up evil? No. I'd argue that interpreting those kinds of events as evil would be the product of an immature or underdeveloped perspective on reality, similar to that baby who thinks their parent's face disappears when they cover it. Now, does this make evil purely a matter of perspectival interpretation? Should we accept all instances of suffering as a cup to be received? Should the abused wife continue to allow herself to suffer and just change her perspectival interpretation of the event? Should those scientists searching for a cure to cancer stop their research and just accept cancer as part of God's good creation? Should you not pray for that loved one who gets sick? Should you not even lock your doors at night? No. You can see the danger of a hyper-stoic acceptance of all events as opportunities for just perspectival reinterpretation. Just as we can see the difference between a game of peekaboo being an event where we are actually covering our face instead of disappearing, we should recognize that the perspectival gap between our interpretive framing of the events of our world and that of an infinitely wise and intelligent God are all the more significant than the perspectival gap between an adult and an infant. The goal then of event interpretation, which is really central to what we're doing when we're trying to make sense of evil and suffering and the pain we experience. The goal then is to expand our perspectives to increasingly interpret the world from the God's eye view so that we can respond appropriately. If we are followers of Jesus who seek increasing conformity between our perspectives and his, then we should readily acknowledge from the ministry of Jesus that there are instances of suffering that are not part of the functional ordering of creation and do not fit 
into either the shadow side of creation or the cruciform nature of reality perspectives. These are instances of genuine evil attributed to spiritual moral agents sometimes, such as Satan or human moral agents. And in these cases of evil-induced suffering, we're called to resist the evil and bring remedy. The Gospels are filled with these instances of evil-induced suffering that Jesus resisted and alleviated. But for now, I, I just want to highlight one example. Let's consider an instance of suffering and healing recorded in Luke 13. In this gospel scene, Jesus says that the crippled woman has been bound by Satan for 18 years and then heals her. It's clear that Satan is a powerful, spiritual, moral agent who can inflict suffering and even induce what we might call a natural evil upon someone. The woman's ailment in Luke 13 was not a grain of wheat falling to the earth kind of suffering. It was a demonic attack. It was the product of a force of disorder. So, what do we do in each of these instances where it appears that the suffering one may be experiencing isn't just the suffering of our own foolishness, but maybe a suffering that has some sort of cause outside of the domain of our immediate control. Well, if we're going to rightly interpret these events, I would argue that there are categories, categories to consider, little maybe interpretive boxes that we might place particular events in to help us categorize the causal force so here are the three possibilities I would argue we need to consider when we experience pain, discomfort, an instance of suffering. They are, first, is this part of the right ordering of creation that may be painful or uncomfortable, but not something to name as evil? That's our first possibility. The second possibility is, is this part of the forces of non-order, not disorder? A non-ordered experience that humanity gets called to as image bearers to transform from non-ordered, but again, not malevolent, from a non-ordered chaos into something good and ordered. And thirdly, our final consideration is, is this from a force of malevolent disorder that is seeking to steal, kill, and destroy. So again, the three possible ways we can interpret an instance of pain or suffering of any kind is, one, this might be rightly ordered, even though it's painful or uncomfortable, but it's not evil. Two, this might be a force of non-order, again, not disorder, not evil, not malevolent, but non-order, which has the possibility of being transformed into something good or into something disordered. And finally, this could be a force of malevolent disorder, an instance of genuine evil, which is seeking to kill, to steal, to destroy. So how do our perspectival interpretation of events ever come close to naming from a God's eye view a particular instance of suffering as being either part of the uncomfortable right ordering of creation, 
the result of non-ordered forces we're called to bring good ordering to, or work of malevolent disorder that we should actively resist, work to prevent and bring healing to? How could we ever figure that out? Because when it comes down to it, all of our efforts to discern metaphysical causes are driven by the more fundamental desire to find a proper existential application that can help us know how to respond to the disruption of suffering in our real life. Suffering does not cause a collapse of our meaning-making structures and create in us an existential crisis. If we can find a meaning to it and an appropriate response to the suffering, can we transition from being the baby playing peekaboo to being a maturing adult with an ever-increasing expansion of perspective, growing in our ability to discern and be conformed to the God's eye view? Yes. And we can do this while affirming with the Apostle Paul that in this age, we all will only see in part. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 9 through 12. You know, because we all see in a mirror dimly, even as we earnestly search the scriptures, it's important that we compare what we see in that mirror with what others before us have claimed to see in that mirror. So knowing that we all see in part, we might be able to see more of the whole as we comb through those great works of the past, just as I have attempted to do with you throughout this Problem of Evil series. In our next episode, as part of the conclusion of this series, I will go through and highlight some of those voices of the past that I find myself to be in agreement with that I think bring about the best possible way for us to interpret the experiences of suffering and to rightly categorize them as either instances of right ordering, non-order, or disorder. And finally, I'll synthesize from among the best Christian minds of the past that we've explored their best insights that I find to be in keeping with the scriptures to offer to you a theodicy that I hope will help you see the beauty of it all. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I hope you found it helpful. You know, this podcast couldn't happen without the generous support of people like you on Patreon. It's people like Anders, BJ, Clint, Carolyn, Eli, Hannah, John Michael, Johnny, Josie, Julie, Justin, Lola, Luke, Michael H, Michael Hernstein, Michael P, Paul S, Paul R, Ray, Rob S, Sam and Nicole, Sam P, Sarah R, Sean C, Stephen M, Taylor S, Tim K, people like you that make this podcast possible. Thank you all for your support. You know, if you want to get involved, we're still trying to reach our first tier of 300 patrons to support ad-free weekly episodes. 
We're just under, just shy of 100 patrons right now, so we've got a little ways to go. Once we hit that first tier, I'll be able to consistently produce weekly episodes, but on top of that, to expand the video content on my YouTube channel, doing more uh, explorations into the theology and philosophy that we see in films and televisions and, and other video assets that could be of some sort of use or benefit to you as well. If you want to participate, there's also these additional bonuses for you. Things like Q&A episodes, there are group forum discussions for each episode, including today's episode, where you can connect with other listeners from around the world and have dialogue in which you can mutually grow and benefit from each other's insights as well. There's also the monthly Patreon group hangout on Zoom, where those that are in the Theology Tour one group or higher can all hop on a Zoom call with me, and together we talk about some of the things that are of central importance and reoccurring themes on this podcast, as well as just take time for you guys to get to know each other, to find other people that are like-minded, that may be uh, tired of culture war Christianity and are trying to find a different way in the world. So we just had a first one last month. It was a blast. We will have another one this month as well for those that are in the Theology 201 group or higher. If you found today's episode or a previous episode to be helpful, would you consider sharing it with a friend, someone that you might think could get some benefit from it as well? Don't do advertising. I only share what I create and what I'm working on on my social media pages, and that's it. So uh, the only way someone else is going to find out about this is if you share it with them. And I'm always incredibly grateful for those of you that do that and share it with other people. Finally, I suppose there is one other way people can discover this podcast if you think it's worth discovering, and that's just by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, which is still right now, Spotify's catching up with it. I looked at some recent statistics, but Apple Podcasts is still the number one place people are going to download and subscribe to podcasts. So if you leave a review there and a rating there, it improves the likelihood that someone else is going to find this as well. Well, as always, I welcome your feedback, points of agreement, disagreement, objections. Reach out to me on Patreon. I respond to all the messages I get over there. You can participate in that forum discussion, or you can reach out to me on Twitter at Paul Anleitner. I always leave a link for that in the description of each of these episodes as well. So until next time, thanks again for listening, and we'll talk again soon.